Hey, everybody, it's John. And thanks to everybody who helps us out every week by going to patreon.com slash steal this beer and throwing a couple of bucks away so that we can mail beers to our guests and have some fun conversations resulting from that. So uh, if you're not already, go check it out. It's patreon.com slash steal this beer. Uh, as Cass says, a little bit goes a long way and we appreciate the support. Now, here come the sirens. Steal This Beer, a candid weekly discussion about beer, over beer, by a couple of guys that think about beer way too much. Hey y'all, it's five o'clock on Monday, we are stealing beer, I'm Augie Carton. Hey, I'm John Hall. Ow. How are you doing, Augie? You know me. Living the dream, John Hall. Everything's perfect. Nothing to worry about. What a, what like a technicolor you, dream you're living in right now. <laughs> Here we are. It's early February. It's uh I feel like spring is spring is coming. It uh, can't you know, be, I, I, but but I love this. This is like, yeah, it really is like that day where you're like, oh shit, pull the shorts out, everything's good. Yeah, you we know, still got to live through March. It's you're driving on cold. Route One, going to the Home Depot. That never Everybody's happens. Got their windows no down. Idiot. You know, it's uh, it's nice. It's nice. Wait for there. you to go to a Home Depot. It involves Route One for wow. about a hundred and four feet. Yes, I, even a hundred and four feet of Route One is enough to destroy my week. I am impressed with how calm and collected you are for the amount of times you get involved with Route One in the greater Metro Edison area. That's Thank the you. most annoying road in the world. It's uh, it's it's no twenty two, but it's it's up there. So, you know, you're too young. But when I was a kid, it was two o six, two o two, that were ridiculous. But they somehow fixed that over time. Sure. Yeah. All right. I'm, so I'm New impressed Jersey's, you got up this north. But yeah, I you know I built a house in Bridgewater when I was twenty. Well, I mean nineteen. You know, I did a lazy gap year, like I don't want to go to college year where I worked framing houses for two years. That yes. was all up by you. Okay. Um, Memory lanes are, are fun yeah, stuff, but let's, the let's thieves, talk the about the future. At this point. Let's, you know let's what's funny about, is I've kind of been, what's been upcoming. Of, wait, I've been kind of, I've been kind of letting it go, figuring Aaron would just jump in because he's been on the show enough to know and he would just insinuate himself, but he's so quietly and patiently well, waiting. Well, I didn't I know if I was, should. yeah, I didn't know if I was allowed to <laughs> yeah, say I just, I just yeah. figured you'd come over the top Maybe. at some point I don't know. if we, if yeah. we committed well, to the bit hard enough and talked about traffic and weather. How do you take a gentleman? How do you take a gap year, Augie, when you didn't you didn't even go to college, right? I did go to college for a year and a half, three semesters. Okay. But so I you didn't gap start year... that till I was twenty. From right. high school to twenty, I built houses. Then like uh, Amish style? No, no, like I was a I was dude. I nah, was, he was a McMansion like, kind of guy. I, I I was. I built Center Hall Colonials up and down the Route 206 <laughs> corridor. I had a 22-ounce straight cloth framing hammer on my hip, and I left the minute the tar paper was on. I was just right. put, hitting nails and putting sticks up. But uh, you know that wow. part of every time you see a house built that you're like, Jesus Christ, that went up fast, and then it just stops? I was yeah. the Jesus Christ, did that go up fast part of building. And then anything that took finesse or skill, I was not there for wow that is a that is a shared universal experience though of seeing a house going up and having that moment wow wow that really happened quick like my wife rolls her eyes every time i say that framing framing is monumental like it really feels like you've done amazing work you've done great shit woo and then you cut the holes you set the windows wrap it you leave and then the actual people with skills like your tile setters and your trim guys and your spackle guys and your electricians and your plumbers and your pipe fitters and they all do the slow steady not yeah you know they, they're not filling the space they're just they we fill the space and then they fill that space yeah did you uh drink beers at lunchtime I was one of those guys. Like by the time, so it usually takes <laughs> who had the bar for, cart show up. For, no, yeah. for a normal for a normal 
normal New Jersey, because it was all custom construction. I didn't work for, you know, I worked for a small framing crew. We worked for, you know, basically from like Manalapin, Homedale, up to Bridgewater. And that's Manalapin. I like to say Manalapin, you know that, but <laughs> that's my favorite joke. But, um, but anyway, uh, that and, uh, Anyway, it doesn't matter. But so that those jobs would take about, call it 12 weeks, you know, eight to 12 weeks, depending on how big the house was. And by the end of the first week, I had picked where we would lunch. Um, usually that would mean just picking up sandwiches or whatever on Monday, grabbing a couple of beers by Wednesday and not going back to work after lunch on Friday. And that would be where the whole crew like, you know, it had to be a place that had like pizza and sandwiches and a bar with, I was a Miller like, as you know, but my boss, a woman named Joyce was a bud long neck lady. So I had to find bars that had decent sandwiches and those two, which wasn't hard in the nineties in New Jersey. I feel it's important right now because we've said Aaron by first name, but not the full oh, let's proper do the whole introduction. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So I mean, everybody's should I introduce down Aaron point. Goldfarb or should you? You mean Aaron Goldfarb, the author of Dusty Booze in Search of Vintage Spirits? The Aaron Goldfarb of, but he's of been the renowned author of, writing he's been the of author various of magazines and websites. Yeah. Of and countless other books. The guy yeah. who made it okay for me to drink Goose Island that time. Um, uh, Aaron Goldfarb, who I think still holds the record for bringing on the oldest beer the we've Billy ever beer? had. Yeah, the Billy Beer. That was an ep epic, epic day. Yeah, and that we didn't die. Well, it was it wasn't it was, bad. Was yeah. pretty remarkable. So, Aaron, you you've always been. You're an old friend of the show. You're an you're old. You're a salt. very old friend of the show, but you always, like I said, you you've you've kind of often been intrigued by the collector hype aspects of this part of the business, and and kind of normalized slash demystified them. Tell us, yeah. Tell us your path to the Dusty Booze book. Um, okay. And uh, what speed do most people listen to your podcast on? Because I hope they've slowed down after all that house talk so they can actually hear, <laughs> hear me. <laughs> Get it down back to 1.5. Well done. Well done. Well um, done, sir. Wow, that was a dig, John. That's You got to fight. <laughs> it wasn't a dig towards John. <laughs> <laughs> That's my job. I deflect at all costs. Yeah, Dusty Booze. No, I've, I've kind of simultaneously, you know, been in both beer and the spirits world, um, which has kind of followed similar paths in terms of hype and craziness and uncouth behavior. Um, there's, of course, the, the modern collecting world of what we call allocated spirits, like Happy Van Winkle. But there was another thread that's been going on for, I don't know, the last 15 years of vintage spirits collectors um which were initially called dusty hunters because back circa 2008 2010 you could literally still walk into liquor stores and if you knew what to look for you'd go oh shit that old granddad is from 1960 it's still got the iconic orange label we recognize today but i notice a few things that tell me it's actually from 1960 and that's a $500 bottle they're still charging the, you know, 2008 price for whatever that was, $20. Right. The white, uh, the white price gun sticker still says. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> eight, eight fifty or whatever. Yeah. So a lot of really savvy people, unfortunately not me because I was kind of lazy, just, <laughs> you know, went to the most out of the way liquor stores, the most, um, you know, <laughs> liquor stores in violent areas with with the cashiers behind glass the most rural liquor stores and they absolutely cleared them out for for uh you know vintage stuff sometimes dating back to pre-prohibition or back to wow. an era when rye whiskey was being made on the east coast um absolutely incredible stuff that that liquor stores weren't even aware they had or if they were aware they'd say well, why the hell does this guy want this 80 year old rye that has probably gone bad of course anyone who knows so spirits, right. you know, well hold on let me let me interject here um 
And we'll get to an experience I had recently that opens this up for me kind of perfectly timed to you writing this book. But let me try to put myself in the context of before that, which is alcohol is static in a bottle. It's not like wine or beer. Right. Where, you know what I mean? So there is a very good argument from my mind that it doesn't fucking matter if your maker's mark is 1940 maker's mark or 2018 maker's mark because maker's mark is maker's mark and it's not maturing. You're saying there's a reason to buy the 1945 bottle of maker's mark. What is it? Yeah. Well, you know, so for other spirits, we easily know what it is. When you taste a tequila from the sixties or seventies, you're tasting a tequila made of fully mature agave that's you know maybe seven years old now they're rushing to get agave out of the ground so it's not it doesn't have as much sugar in it um you know you're tasting tequilas that are machine made not hand crushed with you know volcanic stone wheels so for something like tequila it's very easy to know why old tequila would taste better it's not covered up with sugar and additives like it is today Right, like there's little... no vanilla. Were you the guy who came on the show that taught me about yeah. it being totally legal to put vanilla into yeah. Yeah. tequila as long as you know the number code? That's fucking crazy to me. Oak, oak ax, extract. Yeah, you can put all sorts of crazy stuff. Bourbon, you know, for what it's worth, has been legally codified, codified in America for what it has to be. So it's harder to 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 be messed with that's what the bottle and bond act of uh 1897 was so that's when they started calling it taylor's jack daniels instead of pork jack daniels i guess um <laughs> yeah but um so so you're right you're not going to taste anything theoretically different but it but once you do taste old bourbon you know no doubt it's better so that raises questions why is that was the corn better? Um, some people believe the oak barrels were better because they were made from trees that were 175 years old. Yeah, oak old barrels growth. are made. Yeah, oak, oak barrels are made with trees that are like 80 years old now. Um, I'm a big believer as a beer drinker too that Maker's Mark used to be fermented in cedar vessels. Now it's stainless steel. Same with wild turkey. Well, distillers will tell you that wasn't adding any flavor, but if you've been to any open air fermenters in the beer world, you're saying that's absolutely ridiculous. How would there not be any flavor in the cedar that they never wash? So I'm a huge believer in that. Most people that are strictly in spirits, I I would say crazily don't believe that does anything. Um, So there's all sorts of these little, just little reasons that add to it being uh, uh, better in in my opinion. Um, But as I said, you know, bourbon is the one category of vintage spirits that's going to most taste like the modern stuff compared nope. to tequila or rum or liqueurs campari famously used to be colored with with bugs now it's just colored with red dye um right. there's also let me ask you let me ask that. you some various let's let's stick on bourbon even though clearly you've made it clear to me and i know i'm being a pain in the ass by doing this but i think it's the easiest conversation even though it's sure got the less less least scope of changes but there's also the fact of um you know barring current heights a lot of bourbon well a lot of booze but like i said let's keep it to bourbon because it'll keep me on topic hopefully making your answers easier but like a lot of bourbon is blended um i don't i've got all these words wrong so i won't say them as if I'm right, you'll you'll tease that out. But like Pappy Van Winkle yes. isn't Pappy Van Winkle till the barrel they make Pappy Van Winkle is 23 years old in suits. It could have been 50 other whiskeys on the way. It's not like they make whiskey for Pappy Van Winkle, put it in one barrel and wait 23 years. It makes, you know, the barrel selecting makes that Pappy versus all the things along the way. The reason I ask this is which makes me think there must be like rock stars in the history of the different houses who blended to, you know, even though it should always be the same thing. Every time you get happy 23, it should taste like happy 23. Every time you get maker's market should taste like maker's mark. 
There must be the master blender's palette giving some wrinkle to time, or isn't there? You know what I mean? Is there a time of, oh, well, that's when Jim was at Constellation, and everybody knows those were the best 30 years for whatever. You know what I mean? Does that exist? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, you know, you look at Buffalo Trace that makes Pappy Van Winkle. They have... um what do they have? Uh, I think they have three mash bills. A mash bill is just the percentage of ingredients, you know, i.e. 75% corn. Right. It's 20%. how they make their beer. Come on, motherfucker. It starts right. as beer. They're making beer at that point. Right. It's a topless <laughs> beer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I've been in the warehouse where Pappy is aged. Well, the, the question you ask is a good one. You know, they have lower level weeded bourbons made of the exact same mash bill. So at a certain point, if they're going, this is not tasting great, it's going to become Weller Special Reserve, I have to believe, um, mm-hmm. or or be blended into something else altogether. So you're absolutely right. There's there's barrels with potential to become pappy. And, you know, it, it, there is something still magical about aging that can't be even controlled by modern labs and, and modern science. Um, certain uh, Certain whiskeys, most famously Blanton's, come from a single warehouse warehouse h is the one for blanton's and they just believe that that warehouse guarantees the blanton's flavor uh bookers i think comes from a specific warehouse and a specific floor of the warehouse i think it's floor three and four but yeah you need some acumen in blending to hit that flavor profile you know pappy pappy's release the 23 is probably i don't know fifteen thousand bottles so that's that might be a hundred barrels. Yeah. It's not that limited. Right. It's insane. Anyway, thank you, sir. And I hate for those of you that are truly connoisseurs, I hate to go to Pappy. It's just the one I'm most familiar with and been drinking the longest and have the most disdain for the market demand for at this point. So it's the easiest to discuss. What the, brings um... us together on Steal This Beer is a candid conversation of beer, what it's doing, not what we were told it would do. How much we love it, not how much we loved getting it. And what's going on, not what we were told is going on. To facilitate that, we drink blind out of black glasses. Kennedy has sent us artisanally foil-wrapped packages. I have a 19.2 and a 11-centiliter bottle in front of me with a 1 and 2. I am drinking the tall can. Couldn't be happier. Could have let Aaron talk for three hours and just sip this beer all day. I love it. Um, yeah, it's, it's fucking near perfect. I'm torn on what one of two beers it might be, but I think hey. I know what I'm drinking. You've had enough of this, I imagine. Yeah, but I feel like right, it's so familiar. You guys but, go yeah. first. You yeah. guys go first because this is right. one of two beers to me. And the thing is, I don't know that either one of them comes in 19.2, but I think both could. So you guys talk next. Yeah. But all right. So to be clear, it's, um, it's got a really nice, really light malt profile in a very kind of mid-range ABV with some really nice hops stitched in all along the way. I could say for all 60 minutes. Um, okay. <laughs> um, Aaron, you've been on the show before. What are, what are your thoughts on this particular beer in front of you right now? Um. Well, first of all, I was just remembering a story where the first time I went to Augie's house, he 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 tried to ply me with some Pappy Van Winkle, I think, to show off. But I did I didn't take the bait. I was on assignment. So, do you know what's sad about the booze market? <laughs> what? One, you should have had that Pappy. I know but I should have had it. Two, at this point, if you were standing here right now, the bottle I would be doing that with is Louis the Thirteenth. Yeah. Just yeah. because Pappy's Pappy's gone so out of rational you know risk reward dollar cost i don't buy it anymore well the funny thing is that i don't even believe any of it's real anymore even the stuff i'm offered i don't believe it's real yeah the pappy you would have been serving me in 2012 or 13 would have been drastically different from today's um i liked it back then it's all fucking sweet now it's gross yeah maybe your palate's just improving um, wow fuck you <laughs> you remember i used to pour it into milk and drink it with chocolate cake you can fuck off dude i have Wait, always may... been a dilettante about that booze 
Wait, can you tell me about um, whiskey and milk? Because I've heard men of a slightly older age than me talk about it, and I don't really understand. Oh, wow. Now we got to fight. Now no, we that was that, that was mean. You just called me an no, old fart. I did not. I said, you know, I turned 45 next week. So, view, listener. Uh, so, that, so, whiskey and milk. It helps settle the tummy. Almost as good as brandy and coffee. But the whis- the Pappy and Milk joke comes from Danny Meyer used to own a restaurant called Blue Smoke in New York City. And Danny Meyer did a bunch of authentic, you know, barbecue culture things in Blue Smoke. And one of the things he did, and this is all a long time ago, we're talking about the mid aughts. Yeah. But one of the things he did was he had a private labeled Pappy 21 for Blue Smoke. Yeah, it's worth $20,000 now. It was great, great. But we used to drink it a lot. Like it was it was the bar closest to my friend's apartment. That's where we'd go for dinner. But because of that, they had the entire Pappy set. Um, and one of the things they did that I loved was they had a dessert that was just a three-layer devil's food chocolate cake with a six ounce diner orange juice glass with milk in it. And at some point deep in our cups one day, we decided what that needed to be a grown up dessert was a shot of the Pappy 23 in the milk. Wow. Uh, because it vanilla it up and it really tied it to the chocolate nicely. And so over the years, that became why we'd go to, even if we had dinner somewhere else, we'd be like, we should go to Blue Smoke. And have chocolate cake and pappy and milk. Um, and if they had a bottle of 23, we'd use it. And if they had a bottle of their 21, we'd use it. And otherwise, we never drank younger than that. Now, this is not a cheap adventure. But at the time, just so everybody knows, that shot we were throwing in there was, I think, $32 for the 21 and $40 for the 23. That's incredible. Um, yeah, so as I it said, was a decadent waste of money, but it was a decadent waste of two $20 bills. Yeah, those blue smoke bottles do go up at auction now for about 20,000 plus. So I've drank, if that's the case, I think I've drank at least $700,000 worth of that booze. <laughs> we would go there and drink it weekly, it was like a Thursday after work thing. That's incredible. That's fucked. I mean, it's just fucked. But it, I mean, good for everybody. It's just it's the people wasting the money. That's a good point. right. Yeah. Because all right. So I was down in Maryland at the. Oh, we've totally stopped talking about beer. Let's finish. The beer. This is this is turning into a classic steal this beer episode where Aaron has this <laughs> fascinating book is the authority on dusty booze, and you are just explaining to him. <laughs> no, well, we're talking about matter. shit we drank together. He's telling me about it. I can't believe that's a twenty thousand yeah. dollar bottle. All right, but it's waste money. So I was down. I was down at Burley Oak. It was my birthday. I was surrounded by a bunch of bad influences, including Eric Ruda and my wife. And they all said Augie has to do shots for his birthday. I can't imagine anybody in their right mind actually said that sentence. My wife says that sentence. Later on in this night, we go to a karaoke bar where my wife looks at me and says, this looks like the kind of bar that has a bottle of Jaeger in the freezer. And I turn to the bartender and say, my wife just said, this looks like the kind of bar that has a bottle of Jaeger in the freezer. And the guy looks at me and said, fucking A right we do. And then 20 brewers did a shot of Jaeger with my wife for my birthday. But anyway, anyway, back to the story. I was like, all right. I asked the bartender because they have a whole bunch of booze back there. They're not a stupid state like us. I was like, I'm feeling a whiskey. What would I drink? And Aaron, I'm going to need you to fold in here because I don't know what I'm talking about. But he had a bottle, a special bottle of Mickner's rye. It wasn't okay. the, the standard Mickner's rye. It was like a double barrel or whatever. He's like, this is super cool. I really like it. I think you like it. And it was the most delightful shot of whiskey I've had in. This is recently. It was two months. Yeah, it was November third. Was my birthday. It was November third last year, so twenty twenty three. So maybe like the toasted rye. Okay, so is that a thing? But do you yeah. know it? Do you like it? Am I wrong? I thought it was fucking lovely, and you can buy that bottle for fair money. So I don't know why anybody's wasting money on all this other fucking syrup liquid. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm getting notes of mango and citrus. Are you going back to the beer? Like your job is to keep <laughs> us on track. Oh, uh, you're a good guest. You can come back anytime you want. You got mango. I like mango. You got a little, yeah, mango. a little bit of that tropical fruit. Uh, it tastes like yeah, it tastes like the flavor notes of like hazies in the pre-hazy era. Like the, there, the there, there's a touch of the early yeah. twenty teens. Right, uh, modernity yeah. about it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I would that, put it that... right at 2010. Yeah, that's Maybe... exactly what it feels like. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. It's I believe it's one of two beers, and it lacks the bitterness I expect from both beers. Okay. Which worries me about the slide away from bitterness. If I'm right, if this is so, if this is a new person's beer, or an old person I don't know well. Um, whatever, but this is a great, let's just call it a fantastic pale ale. Yes. From the yeah. days of Citra rather than the days of Cascade. Is that what we're all saying? I'll go along yeah. with that. Yeah. Make this a Centennial and Citra pale ale instead of a Cascade and Simcoe pale ale. And I think it's perfect, right? I'm with you. Here, yeah. here. We're doing other half's 10th anniversary on Saturday. And I feel like that's been putting me back to 10 years ago. A lot of what I was doing and a lot of what they were doing and a lot of, you know, oh my God, what a good idea before everything went insane. But it puts me in the mind of like those original IPAs we were all making, mm. but the pale ale version, you know what I mean? Like, like if there was an OH IPA, like an industrial 5%, this would be it. Um. Cass is sitting in the Kennedy seat today. Cass, what are we drinking? You are drinking Daisy Cutter. Nice. nice. I was right. So I thought it was Daisy or 60, but I've never seen either in this can, although I see 90 in this can all the time. Oh, you but thought yeah. it might be a 60 minute? I thought it might be a 60 minute. Huh. Interesting. Doesn't it hit that. you like fresh 60? No. No. It does I think me. it's a little maltier. No, I don't, I don't, hmm. I don't get that. That's an interesting note, though. I thought it was either Daisy or 60. Um, I actually want to see it because I want to make some 19.2s. Yeah, that's a fucking cool can. You want to put canoe in 19.2s? <laughs> Sleeper hit of the summer. You know what I'd have to charge for a 19.2 canoe to make it worth it, even to be flat at the brewery? I think we'd have to sell it for $7 a can. Oh, that's no. To make these, I'd have to bring to make these. I'd have to bring Brian in. I'd have to buy and make this can for it. Yeah, no, this would get way too expensive to make a one-off three percent beer in. It's a missed opportunity. <laughs> um, hey, Aaron, I like uh, this label. I'm, I'm, I'm curious because so we're we're talking about these folks who find these 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 bottles and everything and then you've been talking about the resale value of things are there people who eventually actually open these and enjoy them and drink them or is it just continuous flipping once they get out there into the market no well you know there is there is continuous flipping of modern releases um but the original dusty hunters got into the game from a pure flavor perspective because these uh, these things didn't have a lot of value in in the aughts. Um, you know, that Pappy Van Winkle that Augie might have served served me was not probably made by Buffalo Trace. It included liquid from a defunct distillery called Stitzel Weller, where the actual Pappy Van Winkle Sr. had worked in the 50s or had, had run. Um, so, and it's considered some of the finest bourbon ever made. But it went out of business in 1992. So, you know, if they if if they had barrels from 1992, add 23 years to that, and that would be the last year that Pappy Van Winkle was Stitzel Weller liquid. But you know, if you find Wellers or old Fitzgeralds from the 60s, it's going to be Stitzel Weller liquid. And anyone who loves bourbon, you know, aspired to taste taste these things because they were so so incredible and so much better than. A lot of the stuff coming out today. Same with Old Granddad, which is now made by Jim Beam. It used to be made at a distillery called National Distillers, um, likewise superior to today's liquid. Um, 
there's not real i mean there are collectors today buying stuff not to necessarily flip but more as, as investments um you know that that blue smoke has been has been going up for quite a while and i i doubt many people that have bought it in the last five years have, have opened it because at a certain point it just becomes moronic of course to open so, which is why you've only had it at my house god i'm an idiot anyway go on <laughs> right you know, I, I mean, I've even had I've even had bottles I intended to open, but as they go from three hundred dollars to five hundred dollars to a thousand dollars, you start thinking, you know, it's not really worth it to me to try this. Um, but I, but I would say most vintage spirit collectors are also vintage spirit drinkers. Okay, not drink as much of it as they used to, just because the values have gotten so out of whack. So, do you know the aviary in Chicago? Yeah, of course. Do you know the downstairs room? Yeah, the office. Yeah, all right. So I recently went and did a whole, you know, couple hours at the aviary in the ice house in the office. And the that's what made me aware of what I think you're talking about versus what I would. When you told me you were doing this book, I was like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, who cares about trading, you know, Jefferson 20? Yeah. in the secondary but th after having been in there after having them explain it to me and after having some of the cocktails they put together from recipes from the days that bottle was from now now you know me now i'm super excited about it now i'm super intrigued about it but john to answer your question there's a bar in chicago that has an astounding collection of this stuff that aaron's talking about where you can just go get one drink with it in it now that's the next yeah. part i want you to talk about Aaron, because what you've touched on that really shocked me there is it's it's dopey booze that's attractive here right it's none of these what would we call them hype boozes that we know right like you said they have a bunch of old granddad they have a bunch of makers they have a bunch of campari yeah. it's a huge one for some reason i yeah, guess it's I that mean, bug thing you just explained yeah, but I then mean, they turn them into cocktails. It's not even like what's yeah. it taste like straight. Like, they're like, here is a proper 1942 cocktail with proper 1942 old granddad in it. So talk about that part of it. Yeah, and you know, I I mentioned earlier that spirits don't age in the bottle. Um, you know, they're drinkable time capsules. That that changes a bit with liqueurs because they have sugar in them. You know, mm -hmm. if you have, if you have an old chartreuse, the sugar kind of starts crystallizing into this very pleasant flavor profile some people think um you know certain botanicals fade out uh certain botanicals get sharper um so liqueur is the one category um that that kind of ages like wine not completely but a little bit but yeah you know around you know the the early 2010s certain bars like canon in seattle was a major one um the milk room also in chicago chicago was kind of an epicenter of of vintage spirits, they started trying to make cocktails like they would have used to taste, you know, a, a 1960s Mad Men era martini, a pre-prohibition old fashioned, et cetera, et cetera. And if it wasn't a cocktail with, with juice, of course, you're not going to use vintage lime juice or whatever, you know, you could, <laughs> you could really taste a Manhattan as Don Draper might've tasted a Manhattan. Um, you know, well, vermouth yeah. also would age a bit too because it's wine based. But you know, and it, it, it's a it's a fun and interesting and very expensive uh, way to to taste cocktail history. Now, did you do the, any of this when you were researching this? And were there spots in our neck of the woods I should do this at? I believe the aviary in New York is gone, and I don't think they ever yeah. really did that part of it, right? Well, you know, Dante, which I'm sure Augie's been to, which is a great. Um, I have not. Oh, you haven't? I know, really? I know wow. that I should have. I just, I haven't really been doing shit like that for the last couple of years. Yeah, but, it's like a, uh, a, a Italian style, um, I don't know what you'd call it, espresso bar slash cocktail bar slash Amaro bar. It's a very interesting place. It's one cocktail bar of the year before um, internationally. But occasionally they will bring in vintage Amaro and I've had... Um, I've had a vintage martini there, a vintage Negroni. Negroni's kind of the the vintage um cocktail that that most gets 
made just because of the ingredients. Yeah, it's hitting everything you're talking about, right? Because it's it's yeah. your basic it's your basic boozes, which sound right. like they've had a lot more change than you know what I mean? Like like you don't need an Irish car bomb from nineteen eighty seven. Right. And, and to be clear, some bars right. have Easy. have some some bars have made kind of jokey um you know 70s and 80s trash culture cocktails uh I, dude i just had my my niece turn 21 and my little sister tried to get me to take her out for like the proper jink ups i make, used to make people do and i was in a bar being like do you know what a silk panty is you know what <laughs> i mean do you know what an alabama slammer is i was yeah. trying to bring up like all those 80s 90s just fucking mind erasers you know what i mean all the gross shit we used to do to each other in the 90s that luckily yeah. moved away in the past anyway um so keep talking like so tell yeah, us more to, about to, yeah, the negroni so makes answer... a lot of sense what else is a good one so manhattan old-fashioned rob roy negroni what else is like a an all booze could be period what are the fun things to what next time i'm out at one of these places it's, it's what gives it's me pretty, the best experience it's pretty much the canonical cocktails as you mentioned the all booze cocktails you're not going to have a vintage daiquiri um um, and New York really does not have a lot of vintage cocktails. Um, Josh Rickholt, who used to own the well, just opened a bar in the East Village called Down and Out. And he has probably the biggest vintage menu in New York right now. Um, but other cities have, have bigger menus. Um, Chicago also has a place called Billy Sunday, which is a vintage Amaro bar. Um, oddly enough, I was in Sput and Dival recently and they had a lot of vintage Amaro. They've kind of changed their really um, yeah, it's very it's very strange. Um uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what's going on there. But um yeah, I would say, you know, Martini, Negroni, Manhattan, those are kind of the classic vintage cocktails to try. Yeah, that's those are all fun. And the problem with those though is three and you're done anyway, right? So you might as well spend money on them. Um, hmm. You've got me hey, so excited. Are you tasting beer too? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, talk about throwbacks. This is. Mm. So there's a when back in the days when you had to know, but you know, back in the days when you had to know brewing instead of brew flavors, like oh, that's Citro, oh, that's Amarillo. Oh, John's gonna hate that one. It's Mosaic. Um. Mm my brain in this beer goes right to the Maillard of the malts. Mm -hmm. Wow. There is a really neat Maillard aspect of this beer. Richness. There's a warmth. There's just, there, but there's like, also that, but... that tautness between that little tiny fucking roasted hull or whatever. And all the sweetness that allows this beer to have like, this is, yeah, this is a good beer. Yeah. Um, and it's in one of those European bottles, so I'm not going to guess I know it. You guys will tell me what it is. What, all I can tell you is when I first smelled it, I thought, oh, it's, you know, dark Belgium. But there's none of the... Mm -mm. No, it's not that None, that of, the, none of that or, yeast. There's yeah, none of that no, yeast. It's, so it's, uh... it's, it's somebody's clean ferment. Yeah. I don't know. I have oddly enough, which is a very odd thing for a man to be doing in 2024, been drinking a lot of Doppelbox lately. And oh, that, you think it's that, a Doppelbox? I'll buy no, that. No question. Okay. I'll buy that. That makes sense. It's, that 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 settles where I needed it to settle. There's it's, it's all not, that sweet richness, but none of yeah. that Trappist right, ferment. Be, before we do the reveal, because I the more I'm I'm yes, I'm gonna it, it's hitting all of those notes. What why are you drinking Doppelbox in 2024? They don't know. Is this, you know, you just—is this a new book? No, I. You know, I. If just, so, you know, I reinvented the Doppelbach. I'll send you one. You know, guys like us have been drinking beer so damn long; it just like gets a little boring. You know, certain things. So I live across the street from a good beer store. I, I live right by the Double Windsor now, which I'm sure. Oh wow! Good for yeah. you. That's a yeah. big move for you. Yeah, it's about 15 blocks from where we used to live, but I live yeah. I live right by the Double Windsor, and there's a great beer store there called 209 Station, about as big as a, a coat closet, but they have an incredible selection of beer, and they have all the modern canned stuff, but they get a ton of just like old school 
you know, German and they get a lot of harvest ale from uh, uh, England, which, which oh, like the, the Lees. Yeah. 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 J.W. Lees. Right. Exactly. So mm. I'll buy, you know, mm. I'll pick up, I'll pick up a modern Pilsner <laughs> and then I'll just grab something old school, you know, a Doppelbach or a, <laughs> a Hefeweizen or something. And, you know, you, you marvel at, even though these beers are so off trend, just how damn good they are and how yeah. much, how much they hold up. Um, but this is not one I think I've tried in the last uh, year or so. It's a perfect, perfect winter beer. Um, yeah. It's nice a real, so so I I'm even I who will argue with anybody are not going to argue with the two of you agreeing on it being a doppelbach. I don't know if I'd have gotten there because my head was still working its way through Northern England and Scotland. Sure, but but I'm perfectly willing to acquiesce that it is a doppelbach and it is a fucking lovely doppelbach and and you're right, right? So it's it's. We, I've been I've been on this I've been beating the horse of um, Don and M had uh, had uh, Kimmick on Kimmick from the Alchemist on their show, and he talked about drinking one heady over four hours, which became a thing of mine. And I'm very proud to say you can do that with my beers because I should be, but. Both of these beers right now, Daisy Cutter and whatever the second one is, are beers like, I'm like, oh, you can just pour that in the cup. It's right now, Thieves at Home, we're recording at 2.15 on a Sunday afternoon, first sunny day in a while. And like, I don't need to do a beer run to keep drinking all day because between this 19.2 and whatever, I've got four hours of drinking here because... Yeah. Everything is so stitched into what these two beers are. It's not going to go away if it gets warm and sits open. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. and I, I I like topical box at a at a room temperature too. So mm. yeah, that's a pretty. And you know what's funny is I've now switched to going back and forth between the two, drinking with exuberance, if you will. And the Daisy Cutter makes the whatever the bottle is taste much sweeter interesting like yeah. it takes all of that whatever the little tiny bit of bitterness is i was missing in daisy cutter masks any bitterness in the what we're calling a doppelbach anyway let's reveal it cast yeah got? cast what is it i angered celebrator nice the goat nice. the goat yeah Literally. Ken kennedy had to take the little uh charm off before he wrapped yeah yeah, yeah. Wait, yeah. beer writers, explain to me: Is Celebrator the goat, or is Salvatore the goat? I think Celebrator's the goat. Yeah, I think Celebrator's the goat. This is the, but it's not the first, right? Salvatore was the first Doppelbach. I have to go back. Or is Celebrator the the first Doppelbach. <laughs> having having so, said that, the Doppelbach I had on Friday, Andex, I think was better than this. Really? Okay. Yes. Ooh, we got a Shots new book fired. to write, team. So we got a new book to write, team. Um, shit stirred on Steal This Beer. You know what I love most the about The Doppelbach community is going to just send me so many letters. <laughs> you are going to get fives of letters as a result of this. Um, but they're all going to be uh, on parchment written in quill. So, yeah, it's... You know what I love best about this episode? Only the truest. My dear Sir Goldfarb. Only, only the truest of thieves are going to to have to get to how good this episode was because uh, we yeah. did all that ten minutes of bullshit at the beginning where everybody turned off, but from the well, minute Aaron said slow back down to one and a half, yeah. I think this has been a pretty good episode. I think it's, even I think the it's beers, gonna, yeah, they're great. I think it's going to sell me a lot of books too. Yeah, I, oh, so you mean book, Dusty yeah, Booze in Search of Vintage Dusty Spirits in by Aaron Goldfarb oh, from well, Aaron, not, that, not that I believe you come on here for that, but I hope I it's don't. true because the truth is <laughs> I've really had a pivot. Like I said, when you told me you were working on this book last time we talked, I think you've been on the show pretty recently, unless you know. I'm in I the did. I, I think I, I think I did a substitute teacher gig like uh, yeah um, a few months ago when and, and I had nothing to promote. To be clear, I just came on for the the good right. times and community, which was good. But what I'm saying is, I when you said you were writing a book about Dusty Booze, I really thought you're writing one of those. This is the current hype shit, and here's how it's going. No. But having 
you know, having heard what you were talking about at Slash, having had the experience of going to, you know, I think America's greatest chefs, cocktail bars, you know, old world experience bar. You know me, I fucking hate spending money on anything that doesn't have all the value experience in it, even though I will waste money to get it. It really came together, really coalesced for me down there where it was like, oh, yeah, this is a neat thing to learn about. And Well, yeah, and I always say, like, why would you spend so much money on a modern Pappy Van Winkle that's also going to come out next year when you can try, like, you know, Stitzel Weller, which literally will not be on the face of the earth eventually yeah. when every bottle's drink. Um, and for the most part, a lot of these vintage spirits are still cheaper than some of the modern allocated stuff. So it's, it's a no brand. so ridiculous what's yeah. going on in bourbon right now. Johnny Cakes, when we go to our, you know, we still keep promising ourselves we'll do our dovetail weekend. When we do our dovetail weekend, I will buy you one, one cocktail from the 30s at the office. All right. Nice. Wow. Well, there's not going to be any from the 30s. That was prohibition, but. That's why it'll be so much fun. <laughs> it's <right>. Chicago prohibition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is black card Augie talking now. Yeah. But uh, oh, but, you uh, mean you don't know the after school room? Yeah, it's gonna it's, it's gonna cost you. Yeah, yeah, it's called detention, and Augie's very familiar with it. And and, and, every, and everybody knows my name. At cheers. Um, but so anyway, let's let's get back to that part of it. So I'm interested. So are are there, if you know it as well as your book would make me know it, are there because. Because these days, like part of being an old man, I know you just turned 45, so you're easing into this. And that one next but week, yeah. At at 53, mm -hmm. like they told me, like, if you have a bottle of Maker's Mark you bought in high school that you haven't opened, we'd like to own that. You know yeah. what I mean? Because now it's 40 years old. Or, yeah. Know. Are there slices of time where there really won't be a change for 40 years. Like, like you, you keep talking about like distilleries changing or burning down or going away or, you know what I mean? Or like I was asking master blender changed in 90. Are there slices of time per thing that, that matter significantly? Like, like all Campari was different when they switched from bugs to coloring. So any Campari before 22 years ago is interesting, whereas anything in the last X amount of years isn't. Like, how does that, you know, is there good examples of what I'm trying to query here? No, I mean, that's an interesting question because, you know, if you look at the year 2000, which seems recent, that's 23 years ago. Having said that, you know, no, I wouldn't say there's much change from a wild turkey then till today. And will there be much change between it then and 2050 I, I i don't know you know we entered a computerized era within the last i don't know what 15 to 30 years in distilleries where they just don't you know make the kind of accidental errors that sometimes end up making things actually better hmm. you know yeah fewer um, happy accidents right the industry is so you know distillers will tell you that the bourbon industry has never been better and that's because from their mind, right. Because there's but a that, bit. They, well, that, and from their mind, you know, they might remember the 70s where they were throwing out every 10th batch or whatnot because, you know, the Night Watchman, you know, or, or Augie's canning guys, uh, you know, smoking weed and screws it up. You know, that, <laughs> that, that that just does not happen at the Kentucky distilleries anymore. There are not Off errors. the record, Goldfarb. Anyway. <laughs> oh, I forgot that was. <laughs> oh, no. A little pre-show. Oh, no. No, that's, <laughs> no, that was pretty Yeah, you know, I think you'll start looking at other categories. And as I mentioned earlier, tequila is a big one that multinational. Which is super interesting to me because tequila is the one that went most bullshit in the last 10 years, right? So, so the fact that you can anchor an interesting time in tequila to my lifetime when all tequila is just gone, here's how to make tequila taste like you know, confetti birthday cake. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, and, and tequila's kind of demarcation points fairly recently. It's when the multinational conglomerates start acquiring. You everything. can say George Clooney. <laughs> well, it's not even Clooney. I mean, that's, you know, 2013. Um, 
you know, Haradura gets acquired, I think, in 1992. It, it's very fairly recently when, when you know, all, all the major tequila brands were Mexican-owned all the way into the 90s. It's kind of crazy. Okay. Um, and so, you know, Beam Suntory acquires um, El Tesoro, which which um, the the real vintage tequila nerds love this, their stuff from from the uh, 80s. Um, it's still pretty good, but in inherently tequila can't be mass produced. So if it's mass produced, they're cutting corners somehow, whether that's harvesting agave too early, whether that's um, hand grinding the agave, whether that's, you know, adding additives and, and oak extracts. So, you know, tequila takes a long time to make. So if a tequila you're seeing in every single market on planet earth, they're probably cutting corners and it's doubtful. It's going to be that good. Certainly not as good as it would have been in the eighties. Hey, in the few minutes that we have left, cause I'm now watching the clock, unfortunately. Um, Fucking hall dude. For our next you know show. The last time I drank an entire 19.2 on this show, <laughs> yeah, this next week. show is going to be a last sloppy week. disaster. You're definitely going to want to, um, Definitely going to want to extend the gold farms used to it. Keep them with us. When you're talking <laughs> about like those, um, you know, the automation and, you know, the way that things have been sort of streamlined, right. And that these happy accidents don't happen in the same way anymore. What, what's been like the larger distilling companies that have acquired some of these brands? Do they care about these trades? Do they care about these, these hunters? Well, yes and no. Buffalo Trace just this year has started adding this hologram technology to bottle caps so you can go to the internet and see if your bottle of, of Pappy was literally twisted at any point. And from what I understand, it's impossible to counterfeit or overcome the technology. Um, you Just so you know, every single time somebody has said that sentence... Yeah. The next scene is the counterfeiter figuring it out. Of course, of course. Um, but yeah, uh, well, you brought up a point earlier that you wouldn't even buy Pappy because you can't trust it. And a lot of a lot of dealers tell me likewise, unless they get it directly from Buffalo Trace, they just do not. I wouldn't even trust Pappy. a distributor in New Jersey anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, the conglomerates are definitely playing into the hype. I mean, you know, I'm sure all he remembers 15 years ago or 10 years ago when he could drink Japanese whiskey at his favorite. It was amazing. Omakase place that he went on the company yeah. card. You know, <laughs> now, now, you know, now Centauri is releasing million dollar bottles of Yamazaki 55. You can't tell me that's not playing into sure. any, any sort of hype. Um, that mostly doesn't happen in America. Um but you know the same conglomerates own the same American brands as the Japanese ones, so they're they're getting their money somehow. Damn it! The bleakness of popularity. It's bleak. I don't know. It's bleak. That's why you got to drink in the in the in the drink past. in the now. That's why we was... only drink boat. Um, I'm glad you could bring this back to your brewery. You see, I nailed it. Um, I got to tell you, dude, I couldn't be happier with this Daisy Cutter. I fucking love Daisy. Oh, I thought you were going to say my book. I love your book. I love that you did it. I, so I, you know that you and I always go through this where I think I know what you're about to say, proudly declare it. And then you, like, like I said, you got me to drink BCBS and you're the only motherfucker that's ever done that. Um, th this is valid, interesting shit. And to be fair, one of the things I always hated when beer got hyped versus hyped wine, you know, where people are like, oh, this beer... You know, I was like, look, ultimately beer's cooking and wine is farming. And you can't pick the same grape twice, but you can cook the same malt twice. So the the that's it. And before this conversation, slash your book, slash my experience in Chicago, I saw the whiskey is only cooking, right? Like it this yeah. is an established method of doing all these things and truth is not to take their side of the argument you're saying is wrong but if you distill far enough before you put it in the wood nothing you did before distillation matters but nobody really distills that far so of course you're right of course there's an imprint left on what the grains were and what the yeast was but you know 
it's minimized. You've got to be super attuned to find it. But this whole generational change and like what you're saying about tequila, like John, everybody that listens to this show twice knows about my opinion of what a proper margarita is. But the idea of now getting a proper margarita yeah. with a tequila from the days you were talking about by one of the maker, you know, yeah. that, that, that's super exciting to me. That's super interesting to me. That's worth the dollars for the experience. But just spending money so I can tell Alex Kidd, hey, dude, I drank one of those fucking blah, blah, blah whiskeys. And he goes, oh, good. I hope you liked it. It's just never as rewarding. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a line in my book from this um, this bar owner and vintage collector. And he says, when you drink vintage tequila, you think to yourself, wow, I've never drinking, I've never drank tequila before. And, um, you know, I had a 1960s Salsa just a few months ago. It was the first time I'd ever had a vintage tequila. Um, Salsa, you know, probably mm. would have been bottom shelf if it was in America mm. in 1960. It would have been middle. right next to the Cuervo. Exactly. And, you know, the tequila, mar the vintage tequila market's not even that hyped up. So I got two ounces for $30. And, Woo. you know, I tried it and I did say to myself, holy shit, I have never tasted real tequila before because that was distilled agave and everything we're drinking today with some exception, you know, tastes nothing like that. Mm. This is amazing. So, John, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to the office and we're yeah. going to get a five ingredient margarita. Perfect. <laughs> Last time I was there, by the way, so tell me, I know we got to go, John. I know, I know, I know. But is chartreuse one of these things? Because the cocktail, yes. I said, make me whatever cocktail you want to make me. And he made me a fascinating crushed ice chartreuse, fucking delightful thing. But yeah. it was one of those, this is uh -huh. our chartreuse from 60 yeah. whatever. Ch chartreuse is actually probably number two to bourbon and rye amongst collectors um in terms of value and desirability oh good i have um, a lot of chartreuse that's exciting and, and I, i'm sure you saw the viral articles about how the the monks have got fed up and are, are making less chartreuse these days so i haven't but good for so them. even chartreuse has <laughs> become has become allocated these days uh the store by me gets three bottles a month and oh that's shut that. up Fuck I everybody. Know. Yeah. So next time, all right, next time I'm in the city, come into my house. We'll drink chartreuse. I have I, four I, bottles from '99. I the, would very, I would very much love to uh, vintage I've chartreuse. Got yellow and a... green with caps, and yellow and green with corks, which will make sense to you. But I have all four from '99 in the apartment, just waiting for me to get drunk enough to want to drink chartreuse. So I'm just gonna meet you at your pita terra, and we're just gonna get it's drunk done. on vintage let's chartreuse. Do that shit. You can do. It. I'll right. be in town. You know what? I'll, let's make a date. Let's make it Saturday night because I'm in for the <laughs> other half anniversary on Saturday. Well, good. And the, there's no way I'll be making good decisions after that. All right, meet me. Meet me offline, and we'll discuss because I'm definitely done. Upset. That'll right. be fun. All right. All right. So, hey, what do we the, need? Book, we need the book. The book is called. Money. The book oh. is called Dusty Booze in Search of Vintage Spirits it's by Aaron Goldfarb. It's available for pre-order right now, and everybody should go to wherever you buy books and pre-order it now, and then read it when it comes out. It's a. It, it really is a a, a great book. Um, it's. I, I was reading it on the train last week and. Nice work on it, the smell. Drink a daisy cutter. Uh, I was reading this on the train last week. <laughs> the, bar, the bar cart wasn't open. Uh, oh. On the way back, it sure was. Oh, all right. Aaron, we love you. You're always welcome back. I'm always happy to talk with you. I always learn something and appreciate something a little more. So thanks for coming out. Cass, do your thing. Yeah, Cass, thank make you. Make us some money, motherfucker. Patreon.com slash deal this beer. Thank you to all that. That's not enough goes. enthusiasm. Cut, take two, action. Yeah, patreon.com slash deal this beer. <laughs> Thank you all that donate. Uh helps us get these wonderful delectable beers to our guests and all you all. Uh write us letters about your favorite vintage cocktails and milk laden whiskey. <laughs> Steal this beer podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on all the social medias. And steal this beer and see what we're drinking on untapped. Did you hear Cass's attitude when he said getting the beers to Augie and Hall, but yeah. clearly didn't he yeah. didn't get them this clearly time around? You, didn't and get you it. can just hear now the that's fine you can hear the disdain towards us. Cutter, that's I the feel stomach like bug talking. All of the thieves at home and Aaron know how terrified I am of the next two beers because these two beers were like classic 
favorites. Yeah. It's gonna which be good. makes me think I'm about to open a 16 ounce can of fucking marshmallow fluff at 97%. <laughs> well, tune in next week. All right, y'all. Get at us. <laughs> <laughs>